You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates. That all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you. To see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages. Creator. Author. Victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people. And it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained. Overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ, from dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth, deliverer, redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken, we trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only king forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend, request me, or follow me, and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. Welcome to the program. Today is the 26th day of May 2021. Uh, we'll get into the reading right after the dedication. We're going to be reading Holy Priesthood, Volume 3, Trusting Not in the Arm of Flesh. I'll dedicate, and then we'll get educated in the gospel. Um, hold on. I'm just going to tell you, yeah. it's trusting in the arm of flesh. Okay. Okay, well, I am now not going to be able to say the whole prayer because I'm, I was getting it. 
So, are you there? Yeah. Okay. Can you dedicate and then educate? Sure. All right. Are you ready? Yeah? Okay. Our Father in Heaven, we come before Thee this evening and ask Thee for Thy Spirit to be with us so that we might learn the things that Thou would have us learn and has had planned for us. We thank Thee, Lord, for the gifts that Thou hast given us to be able to understand and learn new things, to be able to apply them in our lives. And we ask thee to help Mark and I to be able to, the words that thou would have us say, and uh, help others to be able to learn and answer the questions that they have on their in their hearts and on their minds. We ask thy spirit to be with all of the listeners and with their families. Ask the uh, ask you to keep them safe and help them to have the things that they need to be able to be here and listen on the radio and be able to reach out and help others also. These things we pray for in the name of thy son, Yeshua, even Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so getting right into the reading, Trusting in the Arm of Flesh, Chapter 1 of Holy Priesthood, Volume 5. Next to the committing of sin, there is no more fruitful cause of apostasy among the Latter-day Saints than when we put our trust in the arm of flesh. That's from Heber J. Grant, Gospel Standards, page 31, February 1966, 1996, sorry. <clears throat> the preface. Within the LDS Church, the instruction is all too frequently voiced to follow the brethren or to follow the prophet. There have been countless speeches, conference reports, panel discussions, pamphlets, and entire books and manuals on this theme. But do we understand what this really means? Do we know the real implications and consequences of following such advice? It is like the acceptance of the word humongous, which someone started and many now use, but it's not even found in the dictionary. I didn't know that. It becomes generally accepted because of frequent usage, not because of correctness. Since so many emphasis, since so much emphasis and importance is placed on our obedience to this expression of follow the brethren, each of us should certainly have a clear understanding of exactly what this means. Where did the term originate? Has the Lord ever given such a commandment? To what extent are we required to follow these brethren? Are there times when we are justified not following them? Is this a geographical matter? Do we follow the leaders physically to the Rocky Mountains, or do we follow the leaders' advice and stay in foreign countries? Is this the social call 
Should we dress and act like them? Do we invest in similar financial programs, learn their professions, and mingle with the same kind of people? Is this an educational calling? Should we go to their same schools, take the same classes, join the same clubs, and study the same books? Is this a matter of character? Do we adopt their opinions, biases, and attitudes as our own? Or are we free to do our own thinking? Is this limited to the spiritual arena? Should we blindly accept everything they say without question, whether it's right or wrong? Or should we test the instructions we receive from them based on correct principles and doctrines, reserving the right to reject error and follow only the truth? Of course, in taking this approach, we risk the criticism of not following the brethren. Granted, the above questions are taking things to the extreme, but exactly what is our responsibility in this regard? Having total faith in our leaders and following the brethren is the same as trusting in the arm of flesh, for certainly their arm is compromised or comprised sorry, of the same mortal flesh as ours. And how many times do we read in the scriptures not to trust in the arm of flesh? Brigham Young warned the saints in his day, I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God whether they are led by him. I am fearful they settle down in a state of blind security, trusting their eternal destiny in hands of their leaders with a reckless confidence that in itself would thwart the purposes of God in their salvation. Journal of Discourse, Volume 9, page 150. And if this was incorrect procedure in this day or in his day, then surely it is incorrect in ours. It is hoped that this book will show that the arm of flesh and the iron rod of God frequently lead in separate directions, and that our individual salvation is determined by which direction we take. Chapter 1, page 7, Introduction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, Unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, end quote. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Making choices that are unacceptable to God is the nature of fallen mortal men. This, or the existence of countless different religions of the world is a clear demonstration of a man's foolish and misguided natural weakness. In the beginning, God created man, but in a few years, man had created God from stone statues, golden cows, tiki dolls, totem poles, and omnipresent essence and even federal notes exhibiting mankind's misunderstanding and rejection of the real deity. We have exchanged clubs and bows for atomic bombs, logs, cabins for mansions, and mules for spacecraft. And yet we have learned so little about the true God. But these gods of stone, wood, metal, and currency are not mankind's only gods. We have also learned to worship each other. One thing seems common among savages or saints as soon as a person rises to a throne or a royal chair, or a presidential seat. Mortals begin to revere him. The ruler becomes impressed by his own importance, and the crowd gives him more. Um, page 8. Did you have anything that you wanted to add, or are you still in a not-okay area? Okay, I'm going to take that as a no, and I will just continue reading. In First Samuel... Chapter 8, verses 5 through 22, Samuel relates how the Israelites were clamoring for a king, like all the nations. Verse 5, when Samuel approached the Lord about the matter, he responded, They have not rejected thee, Samuel. 
but they had rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Verse 7, Samuel warned the people of, of the controlling and unrighteous actions of a future king and prophesied in verse 18 through 20 and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen you and the lord will not hear you in that day nevertheless the people refused to obey the voice of samuel and they said nay but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles end quote the similarities to our day are obvious. Human nature seems to indicate that they prefer a mortal man to ruler to rule rather than the Lord himself. Whether it be a king, a president, a monarch, or an emperor, the Lord has said he would fight our battles for us if we would let him. But since the people prefer a king, the Lord allows them to have a king. However, the price is high. The Lord will not hear you in that day. But Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. That's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. We don't seem to learn from history. It continues to be a never-ending cycle, one eternal round. Both civilizations and individual men have a habit of rising and falling, just as consistent as the rising and setting sun. Power, wealth, and greed are tremendous influences on mortal souls and draw them like magnets to offices of power and trust. People put them into offices, and they turn lead in the people, or they in turn lead the people back down. And of all people, the modern Christians have proved to be the most barbaric, whoremongering killers of their own kind. This is page nine. But as history has proved, people usually get the type of leaders they deserve. The masses of mankind are usually too lazy to think for themselves. They become pawns in a game of foreign righteous priests, power-hungry military commanders, and corrupt politicians. Paul the Apostle said, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. But even among the best of the disciples of Christ, there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Even later, as they sat at the Last Supper, there was also a strife among, among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. That's Luke 22:24. The prophet Joseph Smith cautioned the saints about such vanity. In Teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith, page 137, quote, we would say, beware of pride also, for well and truly hath the wise men said that pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And again, outward appearance is not always a criterion by which to judge our fellow man, but the lips betray the haughty and overbearing imaginations of the heart. By his words and his deeds, let him be judged. End quote. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 137. Sanity is a noticeable characteristic of the prince of pride who told the Savior, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Matthew chapter 4 verse 9. Moses learned an important lesson about pride when the Lord opened his eyes and, and he observed, now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. End quote. That's Moses chapter 1, verse 10. 
The powers, influences, and spirits that work upon mankind today move along with accelerated force and sophistication. Page 10. They seem to concentrate the most on those who try to be the most righteous. The Prophet Joseph asked, what is it that inspires professors of Christianity, generally with a hope of salvation? It is that smooth, sophisticated influence of the devil by which he deceives the whole world. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 270. The whole world was deceived by the devil. See Revelations chapter 12, verse 9. And still is. I'm going to read that whole in the middle. The whole world was deceived by the devil and still is. He has been called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Because he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. His most intensive labors consist of perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. This he does through mankind himself, even so-called religious men. Sometimes they are the most respected men in society, but prove to be the worst enemies of Christ. Brigham Young said, Who is your enemy and mine? He that teaches language that is unbecoming, that presents falsehood for truth, that furnishes false premises to build upon instead of true, or that is full of anger and mischief to his fellow beings. I call no other enemies. Who is the enemy of mankind? He who wishes to change truth for error and light for darkness. Journal of Discourse, Volume 16, page 24. It is bad enough when men become enemies to each other, but it's worse when they become enemies to God. Though men may try, they cannot change the gospel, even though they are teachers of the gospel, who think they are serving God. Throughout Matthew chapter 23, Jesus accused the scribes and Pharisees of sitting in Moses' seat as hypocrites, blind guides, fools, white or whited, and vipers. That's a great deal of critical talk about religious leaders. But Jesus had a good reason. He strongly disapproved of what they were doing to the principles of the gospel, knowing that their actions would damage or destroy the souls of many men. Page 11. However, Jesus or anyone else should use criticism only when it is justified. Otherwise, the person himself may be condemned. Dr. Hugh Nibley explained, this is taken from Criticizing the Brethren, H. Nibley, page 3, uh, Farms Publication. Quote, the word criticize is from the same root as the Latin cerno, to sift, separate, decide, and the Greek crino, to separate, decide, judge. Webster's defines criticism as the art of evaluating, evaluation or analyzing with knowledge and propriety, end quote. It should be pointed out that a disagreement over doctrine, history, ethics, morals, science, art, or religion is not necessarily criticizing the person who disagrees with you. Even if a person is wrong in his belief or interpretation, that is not grounds for criticism of the person himself. The Prophet Joseph explained that it does not prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine. That's from Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 5, page 340 finding of a person should not have any part of criticism because the targets are too large on both sides. Consequently, refusing to follow or agree with religious or political leaders should not include criticism or attack against them personally, but rather a serious and constructive study of what they advocate. 
If someone should point out a fault in our character, we should be glad so that we can improve ourselves. But most people can't tolerate that. Abraham Lincoln once stated that he loved his enemies because they told him his faults. It proves a means for self-improvement. Brigham Young said that the man who will only receive chastenings from the Lord himself is not in a proper state of mind before him. That's Journal of Discourse, Volume 3, page 54. But we should have no more interest in rumors of someone else's personal failings that we would want them to have an interest in ours. The prophet Joseph said, there is no salvation in believing an evil report against our neighbor. That comes from the words of Joseph Smith, page 365. Correction should be discussed with the person in error, not with everything else. How are you going to correct a man's faults by hiding them and never speaking of them, by covering up every fault you see in your brother, or by saying, oh, do not I say, or do not say a word about his faults. We know that he lies, but it will not do to say a word about it, for it would be awful to reveal such a fact to the people. That is the policy of the world and of the devil. But it is the way that the Lord will do with the people in the latter days. Or, but is it the way that the Lord will do with the people in the latter days? It is not. This is a matter that seems to be but little understood by some of the Latter-day Saints. It may be understood by a portion of them, but others do not understand it. Every fault that a person has will be made manifest that it may be corrected by the gospel of salvation by the laws of the holy priesthood. That comes from Brigham Young, Journal of Discourse, Volume 3, page 47. This brings us to the importance of making a distinction between inspired teachings and man's opinions between helpful recommendations and rumors. It is a melancholy and humiliating fact that the opinions of most people are determined more by what others around them think and say than by what they believe themselves. They are not accustomed to the proper exercise of their own reason and do not follow the convictions of their own minds. That comes from History and Philosophy of Marriage by James Campbell, page 23. Rather than try to remove the defects and imperfections of the natural man who became leaders, most people revering their, revere their learning, wealth, or position. Page 13. Milton William Cooper, a contemporary Salt Lake author, gave some excellent advice in a recent book. This comes from Behold a Pale Horse by Cooper, page 91. Quote, remember, never worship a leader. If you worship a leader, then you, you then no longer have the ability to recognize when you have been deceived, end quote. He went on to well, show how you make him an fight. idol, too. Yep. You make him an uh-huh. idol. Yeah, and then you're no longer yeah. worshiping God. You're worshiping a person. I know you can hear me because of the yes, way the phones are set up. But um, uh-huh. on the radio show, when we when we talk over each other, they can't distinguish. It's hard to tell what's being said. So when I say something, okay. I'm going to say it again because I know I'm kind of talking over you. Okay. So I'll just kind of let you know or something. But I'm going into in from the mind. Hey, I can't really. So I, I can't really hear you. Okay. Yeah, because you're going into the mind. Okay. I couldn't hear you, but now we're good. 
Okay. He went on to show how it applies to economic and political situations just as it does to religious. What Mr. Rothschild had discovered was the basic principle of power, influence, and control over people. As applied to economics, that principle is when you assume the appearance of power, people soon give it to you. That is also from um, Behold a Pale Horse Cooper, page 42. This principle has found a comfortable place in religious organizations. As soon as a man takes the position of a religious leader, he is revered and excessively and pride seems to follow. On only one recorded occasion, Moses took a little honor to himself and at the rock at Kadesh when he failed to sanctify me, the Lord, in the eyes of the children of Israel. That comes from Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. The Lord severely chastised him for it, prohibiting him from entering the promised land. If Moses, whom we think deserved considerable honor, failed in that instance to give praise to the Lord, why should anyone else deserve any credit or honor? Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Only God deserves praise, honor, reverence, reverence, yes, as Jesus said. Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. That's Luke chapter 18, verse 19. Paul, speaking of, a, of man, said, they are all gone out of the way. They are, are, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 12. That is certainly a very humbling statement. We see religious leaders praising each other with the finest accolades as if to pat themselves on the back for all their goodness. Would this often be, however, for some self-serving purpose? During the Catholic Inquisition, the major crime for which members were brought to trial was for heresy, being accused of opposition to the system. If you disagreed with the leaders of the church, you were a heretic and excommunicated and even killed. No one was excommunicated because of sin since those were taken care of through one's confessions. And it just stopped. So we'll I'll go. say a couple oh. of things. Oh, good, thanks. Okay. Um uh, I want to clarify or clear some stuff up because I ha- um, well I've got people to listen to the program who accuse me of being arrogant and prideful and all these mm-hmm. types of things. So yep. um, for those of you that don't know, um, I have had many very powerful spiritual experiences in my life, and I used to keep them to myself, except for when telling close friends or family members about some things that are very special to me. If I ever shared my story, uh, stories, uh, experiences in a public setting, I always talked about it in the third person, kind of like Paul. He said, I know a man in Christ about three years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth, such as one caught up to the third heaven. Okay, so I 
Paul was talking about himself, but he's all, I knew a guy. <laughs> I used to do the same thing, and on my YouTube channel, Kim, can you mute yourself, or is that not possible? Sure. Okay. It's just, there's a lot of background noise, because I don't know what you're doing, but anyway. So, um, so my old YouTube channel, like, I used to talk like that. You know, I knew a guy, but I was talking about myself, okay? It wasn't until... God commanded me in 2013 to ask him who I am, that he said, ask me who you are, or kneel down before me and ask me who you are. And I was obedient, and I did so. He showed me who I am, why I was foreordained to the position of authority that he has given me, and he told me to be bold with my witness. So I am. I am bold. I don't care if people uh, don't like it. Uh, And in fact, it's interesting because the state president that excommunicated me, he asked me very pointed questions, and I was very straightforward with them. And this this partly was brought up where I, uh, in 95, had been caught up by Jesus Christ in the Salt Lake Temple, or to the Salt Lake Temple in the Spirit, and I stood in the middle tower under the angel Moroni, where I heard the words of God tell me that I would be the final prophet before Jesus Christ returned, which is really weird because I was a Baptist at the time. I was very anti-Mormon. Um... In 2003, I was taken up in, uh, in the flesh, and I saw the Father and the Son face to face, and Heavenly Father laid his hands upon my head after I embraced him in the flesh. And he sealed me up into eternal life, and he gave me specific keys of the priesthood and of the kingdom to do the, the work that he has me doing. Um... Hold on here. I forgot to shift correctly, and I'm in the wrong gear going up this 7 or 8% grade, about 20 miles an hour right now. All right, 19 miles an hour. (laughs) Anyway, so I had these experiences. Um, In 2004, Heavenly Father told me, now, when I had the experience in 2003, God didn't tell me who I was or anything. And in the years between 2003 to 2013, I'd be like, why is it that God did this to me or for me to give me these experiences like I've had? And, uh, and then I would think about Joseph Smith and how not even Joseph Smith it was able to embrace the Father. And, like, am I, I'm no greater than Joseph Smith, like, you know, so anyway, I, in 2000, and, or no, in 2000, well, in 2004, God told me to write President Hinckley a letter detailing my experience in 95, which I did, and it's a pretty long letter. I can't remember how many pages it is, but Kim's seen it. It's a stack of papers. 
because I drew diagrams of what I saw in that tower, in that middle tower be, behind, uh, be below the Angel Morona. And if you go there, you can actually see there's round windows in that room where I was at. So there is a room there. So um, anyway, but um, so I I wrote this letter and L. Tom Perry was sent to meet me. Actually, let's see. I sent it in on a Monday. On Thursday afternoon, I think it was, I got a letter from, or no, I got a phone call from my state president in West Valley, Utah, and he told me that somebody needed or wanted to meet me, and he asked me if I could be to the sacrament room 30 minutes before sacrament started. And so I was there waiting for this unknown visitor to come visit with me. Turns out it was L. Palm Perry, who was an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was sent by President Hinckley um, to come meet with me. And then after, uh, after the meeting, he said, uh, go to your stake president, which was in the same building we were all in. And he said, um, he has something for you. So they basically, what happened was they archived my letter in the churches. There's two, uh, there's two, two archive number uh, numbers, and it says stamp with. There's a, a stamp that says office of the first presidency, email of the first president. I can't remember. If Kim can remember, maybe she could help me. Um, it's been a while since I pulled the document out and looked at it, but I still have it. Anyway, but L. Tom Perry came to interview me about the letter. And the last thing he said was, he slapped me on the back and he said, well, God's the one that chooses those prophets because we sure don't, which I didn't understand at the time, but I do now. Of course, there was a lot of things I didn't understand at the time, but I do now. So anyway, in 2012, yeah, um, I was called before the stake president and I told him about my experiences. And he got all mad and red-faced, and he was very upset, and he wanted me to recant what I had said. He told me I was a bald-faced liar, and I said, just talk to El Tom Perry. They know who I am. Like, President Hinckley was my great-uncle through marriage. We used to go to church at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building with President Hinckley and others of the apostles of the church. They, I was at Marjorie Hinckley's funeral sitting with the family. They know who I am. But this state president wouldn't even investigate it, and they excommunicated me without a trial. I wasn't even, uh, it wasn't even possible for me to get there, and they wouldn't change the date. They said I didn't have to be there, that I was going to be excommunicated. And that's what happened. I, I saw the guy. I met the guy one time in my entire life. He had no idea who I was. And I never saw him again. Okay, so that happened. When I was very upset about this, I was crying because the church was everything to me. And I didn't understand how God was going to make all the things that he told me happen. I was just like, I'm just going to be the most faithful disciple that I can be 
and be the best missionary, and I will do everything I can to serve God. When I was crying before God in prayer, he came to me and he said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. And I did. I knelt down before him and I asked him who I am. And that's why I know who I am and why I was called. He told me to do this ministry. He told me to be bold with my witness. And so I am. If people think that that's arrogance, it's not. I don't even, I know why God did what he did. He showed me why. But even now I'm like, why in the world did God choose me? Because there's other people that are way more polished than I am. And I just, I could pick a hundred other people that would be better to do what he's asked me to do that I would think would I, I just whatever anyway I because never asked anybody yeah I never asked anybody to to worship me I did ask I do ask people to to listen to what I have to say and pray about it with an open heart um with a believing heart and uh don't just judge because you think that because there's a whole bunch of other people who are mighty and strong, that that means that obviously I am just one of those delusional types or whatever. Because I'm not. Anyway, um, I guess I'm just talking about this because of what you were reading about people worshiping other people. Uh, if you make a person into an idol, that is a sin. A true prophet, he gives his witness, he gives the oracle of God given to him, and he points the people back to God's truth, not to himself. And any false teacher or false prophet, or even if you think they're true, if they're pointing to themselves as some kind of authority that you must obey, well, I don't know what to tell you because I know there's some truth in that. You've got to obey the prophet Jesus Christ. He was a prophet. Joseph Smith was a prophet as well, and you have to hear him. But that doesn't mean that he controls you and is a dictator over your life. So, I don't know. I just, I don't know what to say. I just, I just, I, you know, people are just accused, they accuse me all the time of how arrogant and prideful I am because I'm bold with my women. And uh, if that's what you think, then you don't really know who I am. So, anyway. Okay, my turn? Yeah, I'll mute myself. Okay. No one was excommunicated because of sin since those were taken care of through one's concession and indulgences paid. It is frightening to see so many similarities entering into the Mormon Church that were incorporated into the Catholic Church years ago. Members on trial are confronted with the do you follow the brethren question. If they have some reason for disagreement, 
which are with church leaders, they are told the leaders are not on trial here. In many cases, they are even denied the right to use the scriptures for in their defense. The custom of following the brethren has become such an infection in church politics that members are being brought to trial and excommunicated, not for sin, as Elder Hugh B. Brown stated, but solely a question of harmony with the authorities of the church and the church rules. Um, that comes from Case of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints versus Leslie or J. Leslie Broadbent, 1929 trial. Page 8. Excommunications today are less frequent, frequently because of more transgression, moral transgressions and more for being out of harmony with the church leaders. This new doctrine of following the brethren seems to be classified as some newly discovered principle of virtue, a new commandment or special law that supersedes even the articles of faith. If it is that important, then surely we should investigate it more than we have done previously. During the dark ages of, in, of the Inquisition, the Catholic Church presented a written test oath to members for their signature. If they failed to sign, they were excommunicated, usually resulting in imprisonment, torture, and death. Unfortunately, similar test oaths test have also come into practice in the Mormon Church. In, of course, it reset right now because I finally started reading again. <laughs> So I'll just say one thing before I drop into Sunnyside depth here. Okay. Um, the state president that excommunicated me wanted me to uh, to tell him that I knew that that uh, Thomas Monson was a prophet, seer, and revelator. And I said I sustain him as president of the church, but he doesn't have the fruits of being a prophet, seer, or revelator. And that's another thing that really pissed him off. All right, my turn. Because you're breaking up or you stopped. Unfortunately, similar testos have also come into practice in the Mormon Church in later years. In 1972, this author received one from Elder Mark E. Peterson with the threat that if I did not sign this document, some kind of action would have to be taken meaning a trial and excommunication. At least the consequences were not as severe as the Catholic imprisonment or being burned at the stake. I was asked to make the following concession. I sustain the president or the present day program of the church. I accept fully and endorse and endeavor to make a part of my life the present-day teachings of the general authorities. I am sincerely in harmony with these teachings. I sustain the present-day leaders of the church. I sustain and accept their teachings as coming from the Lord. I regard Joseph Fielding Smith as prophet, seer, and revelator of the Lord, of the Lord and accept his policies and doctrines upon all subjects. I accept and endorse the present policies and teachings of the general authorities of the church. It is my intention to live my life in harmony with the present-day policies and practices of the church. That's as quoted in complaint, uh, compliant against Ogden Kraut. As quoted in complaint against Ogden Kraut, page 36. Noticeably lacking from this test oath was any statement about keeping the commandments, laws, principles, and ordinances of God. There was nothing about following God. 
Christ or the Holy Ghost, only that I must follow the present-day program of the church, the present-day teachings of the general authorities, and the present-day leaders with headquarters at 47 East South Temple Street, Salt Lake City. In the days of Joseph Smith, when a particular elder was questioned on his beliefs, Joseph said, I did not like the old man being called up for erring in doctrine. It looks too much like the Methodists and not like the Latter-day Saints. Methodists have creeds which a man must believe or be or asked out of their church. I want the liberty of thinking and believing as I please. It feels so good to not be trammeled. That comes from Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 5, page 340. Trammeling, shackling, or restraining is too prevalent today, not for sinning, but merely for disagreeing with the brethren or some program or present-day policy. Ironically, most of the people who now dislike this enforced doctrine of following the brethren are those who once believed it and later discovered its foolishness, foolishness and impropriety. They felt humiliated, deceived, and victimized. Did you ever buy a used car or because you listened to that salesman tell you how good it was? It may have sounded too good to be true, and you soon learned it was. You believed in him and trusted his statements as being correct, but when you learned how wrong they were, you first felt angry because you had made a mistake, and then you had felt you had been deceived and taken in. There is a striking similarity in both cases described in the above two paragraphs. They trusted in the arm of flesh. Each person is responsible for himself temporarily and or temporarily and spiritually. It doesn't matter if he is a leader or a follower. Both have responsibility for his own salvation. In the day of judgment, he cannot blame someone else for being led astray. Lucifer wanted to save everyone and allow no one to be lost, but he wanted all the glory for himself, and justly so. If a person allows himself to be led, protected, and governed by someone else, then the other person should earn the reward. Brigham Young clearly explained those men or those women who know no more about the power of God and influences of the Holy Spirit than to be led entirely by another person. Suspending their own understanding and pinning their faith upon another's sleeve will never be capable entering into the celestial glory to be crowned as they anticipate. They will never be capable of becoming God. That's Journal of Discourse, Volume 1, page 312. Exaltation is an individual achievement. Following another person might be an unavoidable on a freeway, but it doesn't work on the straight and narrow path to eternal life. This is page 18. Now on chapter 2, the Lord is my shepherd. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua 24. Hold on, Jim. Okay. Jim. I said okay. We only do one chapter a day. We just do previews. So the guest calling line is open now that we're done with the first that chapter. Oh. That is 917-889-8827. And the only reason I put the next chapter in there is for you to give a preview for reading tomorrow. So, uh, so when we get to the end of a chapter, you know, like talked about like the call-in number, and then if people call in during the time you're reading, then we'll take the phone call. If not, then we'll go to that point. 
Okay. So do you want me to read now? You already gave the call-in number. I'm in a bad area. Okay. <clears throat> then I will continue reading. When Jesus came into mortality, he did more than make an atonement for all mankind. He also set an example for them. He established the gospel and then lived it as it should be lived. Jesus was the most perfect example. Man has proved to be the worst example. So whom should we follow? Christ himself answered, follow me. He did not say follow my disciples or apostles or the Sanhedrin, but me. We should let the Lord be our shepherd, file leader, hero, exemplar, captain, and master, as the following quotes explain. Exemplar, Christ is the great exemplar, with reference to all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations. That's D&C 132, verse 7. That is in all things. He leads the way and sets an example for his brethren. Follow thou me is his cry. Second Nephi 531 verse 10. Bruce R. McConkie, Mormon Doctrine, page 259. File leader, the greatest and most important of all requirements of our Father in heaven and of his Son, Jesus Christ, is to his brethren or disciples to believe in Jesus Christ, confess him, to seek him, cling to him, make friends with him, take a course to open and to keep open a communication with your elder brother or file leader, our Savior. That's Brigham Young, Journal of Discourse, Volume 8, page 339. Then let the saints unite. Let them hearken to the voices of the servants of God that are sounded in their ears. Let them hearken to their counsels and give heed to the truth. Let them seek their own salvation. For so far as I am concerned, I am so selfish that I am seeking after my salvation. And I know that I can find it only in obedience to the laws of God in keeping the commandments and performing works of righteousness. Following in the footsteps of our file leader, Jesus, the exemplar and the head of all. That comes from Joseph Fielding Smith, Journal of Discourse, Volume 18, page 135. Captain. But God is our captain. He is our master. He is the one man that we serve. In him is our light. In him is our life. In him is our hope. And we serve him with an undivided heart. Or we should do so. That's Brigham Young, Journal Discourse, Volume 14, page 81. Good master. We are serving a good master, and he will give us all he has promised. Will you all enlist and serve this great captain of our salvation to the end of the war? Then shall you obtain all the influence and power you can wish for. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourse, Volume 10, page 194. The prophet Joseph Smith tried to explain to the people how much he depended on God. I combat the errors of ages. I meet the violence of mobs. I cope with illegal proceedings from executive authority. I cut the Gordian knot of powers. And I solve mathematical problems of universities with truth, diamond truth, and God is my right-hand man. That's Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 78. And that is the end of the reading for tonight. Okay, yeah. So when when we're doing different parts in a chapter, um, I don't do previews. Um, but we will read reread a little bit on the next part. But like when we're going chapter to chapter, 
I always try to add uh, one page of the next chapter so that at the end of the chapter, um, you get the guest call-in number. If there's anybody who is listening who wants to call in, that's the time for them to do it. And then if you do that, and then you do the reading, and then if nobody calls in, which nobody has called in, um, then you know, then that's the end of the program. So, um, are the kids cleaning out the garage or? Nope. Are you sitting in the driveway? I am, and I have texted them and tried to get them to come out, and I haven't. I've gotten. Uh, I can drive by the house if they would like me to drive by the house to help them get started. I can be there in 20 or, well, about 25 minutes. Let them know. Okay, I'll let them know. Uh, Now I'm going up wash plant. Okay. All right, well, um, so so there's another thing. Okay. Not quite yet, and I need you just to uh, mute your line, but don't hang okay. up because when you, when the host line hangs up, it makes it so I can't uh, play the clips. And I wanted to play um, one clip tonight. Um, so, a restoration branch has come out with a Hebraic version of the Book of Mormon, restoring the old names and some of the Hebraic forms in the Book of Mormon. And I have purchased four of these books and given a couple away as gifts. And uh, I wanted to read the first part of that, and I did so earlier today. So I only slept till like noon, and then I sat up with my girl to get home at noon. And uh, and then around 3 o'clock, I went upstairs and recorded these and then put them on the, uh, the studio so I could play them tonight. I haven't listened to them, so I don't know how good the quality of audio is. But I think if, uh, if the last test that I did was any indication of what it is, I think it's going to be a good reading. So... Um, so I want to just play that, and then after that, um, like I said, I said before, if we don't have any callers, then I'll just go uh, straight to the music. But this is the introduction to the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim, which is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37, and also a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 29. So, and let me just talk about those real quick. In Ezekiel 37, it says, Take a piece of wood and write upon it for the house of Judah and for all his fellows. And take a piece of wood and write upon it for the house of Joseph and all his fellows. And you will have one stick, and they will together be one stick in your hand. So um, that's Ezekiel 37 that talks about these two records. One that comes forth from the tribe of Judah, which is the Bible, and one that comes forth from the stick or from the, the people of Joseph, which is the Book of Mormon. 
or the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim. So um, Isaiah chapter 29, it gives a time when this book will come forth out of the ground and it will speak forth out of the dust. It gives a geological, not a geological, but like a, a sign to look for for when this is about, or when this has happened. It says that Lebanon will be esteemed as a forest. So Lebanon is a country about the size of Los Angeles and the cities around it. It's not that big. But in 1948, when when Israel was made a nation. There was one tree uh, planted for every Jew killed in the Holocaust in this small nation. And the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 29 was fulfilled in, in 1948. Shortly after, uh, shortly before that was, well, not shortly, but it was a while before that, but uh, the Book of Mormon had gone forth throughout the whole earth, and that was. Uh, you know, something that was in the ground and speaks forth out of the dust, kind of like it says in Isaiah chapter 29. Also, uh, Genesis chapter 49, um, Jacob gives a blessing to Joseph, and he says that he will be his posterity will be separated from among his brethren, and that they will be taken beyond the wall, so that they will not be able to be touched. And they will be taken to a place that he calls the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. Now, this geological indicator to where these people will be taken to is, in fact, one geological location that starts at the tip of South America, goes all the way to the tip of North America, an unbroken mountain chain. These are the everlasting hills. He said that they would be taken to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. That is North America. And that is where you find the people of Nephi and Lehi, who are Ephraimites and Manasseh from the tribe of Joseph. So, with all that being said, I would like to play a clip. It's 22 minutes. I hope that you'll enjoy it. And... Um, I'll just uh, Kim uh, if you don't want to listen to it that's fine but um, like go talk to the kids and then if you want they are both out here they both got your message good because I don't like Mm -hmm. it when I have to stop by the house yeah it wastes time yeah it's a couple miles out of the way but uh, I can do it you got a big big bar ditch in front of the house I can park this 100-foot-long truck. So, all right. Yep. I'll uh, play the, the Stick of Joseph clip. Like I said, it's, 20, it's actually 22 minutes and 22 seconds. No, I did not plan that, but it's interesting anyway. Okay. So, so uh, I'm going to get out of the car then, and I'm going to go and, like, make sure they're getting stuff done. Um, so I won't get any of your messages or anything for a little bit, okay? You could roll down the window and just put it on the speakerphone. I know. I'm going to do that because my phone is at 38%, and I don't want it to die while it's going off, while it's doing the thing, okay? Okay. All right. Well, I'll start the thing, and then I'll uh, – if we don't have any call, our guests call in, whatever, at the end of the clip, then I'll just go to the music. So, 
All right, here we go with the Sick of Joseph introduction. Thank you, Kim. You're welcome. The Stick of Joseph in the Hand of Ephraim, page 9, Dedication. First, and above all else, this book is dedicated to Mashiach, the Anointed One, who will bring shalom. Those who have labored both anciently and recently to make these words available did so, and continue to do so, as an act of dedication to him. Second, this book is dedicated, as Ezekiel prophesied, to all the house of Israel, both scattered remnants and gathered branches, as evidence that Yehovah has not forgotten his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His breath of life now breathes upon all the remnants of Israel to restore life, and gather scattered Israel home. And finally, this book is dedicated specifically to the Yehudim or the Jewish people. Quote, And because my word shall hiss forth, many of the Goyim shall say, A Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. But thus saith Adonai Yehovah, O fools, they shall have a Bible, and it shall proceed forth from from the Yehudim, my ancient covenant people. And what thank thee for the Yehudim, for the Bible for which they receive from them? Yes, what do the Goyim mean? Do they remember the travails and the labors and the pains of the Yehudim? and their diligence unto me in bringing forth salvation unto the Goyim? O you Goyim, have you remembered the Yehudim, mine ancient covenant people? people? Second Nephi, chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. As remember, we thank those ancient covenant people, the Jews, who have suffered and sacrificed so much to preserve the light and truth of the world. Introduction The ancient house of Israel consisted of twelve families or tribes named for the twelve sons of Jacob or Yehov, who was called Israel. Ten of those tribes were conquered, driven from their homelands, and scattered throughout the world. Although their bloodline continues, they have lost their identity with the house of Israel. The remaining two tribes have retained their identity and are now known as the Jewish people, named for the tribe of Judah. Over 2,500 years ago, The prophet Ezekiel foretold a day, a future day, when the spirit of Jehovah would stir the scattered remnants of Israel and restore them to life. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 11 through 14. He also prophesied of a second scriptural record that would come forth from the tribe of Joseph to Judah. 
in the hand of Joseph's son Ephraim. This record would be used by Jehovah to gather all of the scattered Israel to a home to their lands, into one people and one family that he would call, again call his own. Ezekiel 37, 15 through 23. This is that prophesied record. The stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim is a sacred first temple period Israelite text written by a prophetic family from the tribe of Joseph who fled Jerusalem in 601 BCE prior to the Babylonian destruction. Hashem led them for years in the wilderness and finally brought them over the wall to the American continent in fulfillment of Jacob's final blessing to his son Joseph. See Genesis chapter 49, verse 22. For a thousand years, these ancient Israelites built up their civilization, fought wars, served the God of Israel, and kept sacred records. When their civilization ended in destruction in 420 CE, their final prophet, Moroni, hid the record in the ground to come forth at a future time and begin prophesied, begin the prophesied restoration of scattered Israel to its former glory. This is the only Hebrew messianic ascension document in existence that has not been influenced by the entanglements with Babylon, Greece, or Rome. Because though if those who have kept the record left Jerusalem and the Eastern Hemisphere prior to the Babylonian captivity, it is the most sublime and direct Jewish ascension text in existence. Initial Discovery and Publication of the Text In 1820 CE, the God of Israel called a prophet to begin the long-prophesied work of restoration. When he appeared to that prophet, Yosef ben Yosef, Joseph Smith Jr., he declared the corruption of all Christian religions and his intent to restore his covenant people. On Rosh Hashanah, 5,588, or the year 5,588, or in 1827 CE, Yosef received this record from an angel at the place where it had been buried over 1,400 years earlier. Yosef received divine power and means to translate the ancient text and publish it to the world. Yosef, son of Yosef, first published the text for a Gentile audience in antiquated English under a different title. As happened with the Bible, Gentile churches and institutions attempted to claim the book as their own, make profit from it, and use it to gain converts, all while utterly failing to appreciate its author's purpose, message, or destiny. See Second Nephi chapter 12, verse 8. For more information about the first public text, see the appendage of 
the appendices at the back of this book. Although the text itself acknowledges it will convince some few Gentiles to believe in Israel's God, the text's main focus is directed to the scattered remnants of the house of Israel with the stated purpose of restoring the knowledge of Jehovah's covenant and gathering Jehovah's people in preparation for the time of the Mashiach, or who the Gentiles called Jesus. Current translation. Nearly 190 years after the first English translation of the text, Jehovah sent his hand again a second time to gather his people. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 and called servants to prepare and publish the text in its current form, without the encumbrances of the Gentile language and concepts. Part of this effort involved removing antiquated English words and expressions, as well as restoring the Hebraic terms that would have been used by the original writers. This Hebraic root English translation reveals the ancient Hebraic nature of the record and proves a clear understanding of Israel's God. His work now underway and the coming age of Mashiach, the original intent, intended title of the work has also been restored as stated by Yosef, son of Yosef, who called it the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim on multiple recorded occasions. Numerous footnotes have been added to explain Hebraic concepts, reference language, and ideas found in the Tanakh, and to provide a deeper understanding and explanation. Many footnotes also provide cross-references to other areas of the text to enhance the reader's understanding. However, the reader should know that the footnotes are not part of the original text and should not be regarded as anything more than the opinions of those preparing this current version for publication. Likewise, because the text is is thoroughly Hebraic in nature, the number of footnotes regarding Hebraicisms has been intentionally limited to a few representative cases. A thorough treatment of the Hebraic nature of the text would fill multiple volumes. Many ideas presented in this ancient work persisted in Jewish thought for thousands of years and appear again in later Jewish sources. Such sources have been referred to or referenced when applicable. See the abbreviations and references in the Appendix A for further information. Texts found within the Stick of Joseph that also appear in the Tanakh are featured in bold. A glossary is provided at the end of the volume with explanations of Hebraic names and terms. Jehovah, who keeps his covenants, has now decreed the restoration of his holy people of Israel by sending the stick of Yosef to Judah in the hand of Ephraim. The glory of this accomplishment belongs to Jehovah alone. This is his work, and it is his text. 
though it came through the hands of imperfect mortals. If there are errors, they are the faults of those who have labored to recover the text. The purpose and intent of this translation, this effort is a direct response to the promise of Jehovah that he would restore the house of Israel. Because true worship always requires sacrifice, thousands of dollars and thousands of hours have been freely given to this project on a volunteer basis without compensation. Those who have contributed their time and means have done so to offer a gift to the world with no intent other than to obey Jehovah and see his covenants fulfilled. Therefore, this book is sold at publisher's cost with the specific intent of eliminating any profit. The text is also available at no cost online at www.stickofjoseph.info. First published in this form at Rosh Hashanah in the year 5780 or 2019 of the Common Era, the Stick of Joseph is Jehovah's call to all the house of Israel. He has not forgotten his people, and he invites all to return to him, to remember his covenant with their fathers, to obey his commandments, and prepare for the glorious day of the Mashiach, or the Messiah. Within the sacred text, Jehovah issues a specific warning against those who would attempt to profit financially to elevate themselves above others or attempt to gain control over others in any way by using this book or its teachings. Quote, He commands that there shall be no priestcraft, for behold, priestcraft are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not for the welfare of Zion. But the labor of Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. Second Nephi chapter 11, verse 17. This record was originally published separately from any church assembly or organization. Therefore, accepting the stick of Joseph does not require one to be institutionally loyal to any organization, group, or man. It was written unto all nations. See dedication in Appendix F. Those who believe these words are invited to repent, obey the mitzvot of Jehovah, and be immersed as a sign of acceptance. More information is available at thestickofjoseph.info. The House of Israel, the Jewish People, and the Stick of Joseph. Three major world religions claim Abraham as patriarch, Jews and Christians also acknowledge Abraham's son Yitzhak, or Isaac, and the grandson Yaakov, or Jacob, as Abraham's successor in Jehovah's covenant. Yaakov was named, renamed Israel and given twelve sons who became the twelve tribes, or house of Israel. 
The text in every Abrahamic religion record this record the story of, sec, of the second youngest son, Yosef, who was sold into Egypt, slavery, by his brothers, and who subsequently saved Israel's entire family from a decimating famine. The family of Israel eventually became scattered throughout the world. Most lost their identity in connection to Israel, with the exception of the tribe of Judah, from whom the Jews are named. The tribe of Judah, tendencies, and sacrifices over thousands of years preserved sacred texts, traditions, and teachings going all the way back to the patriarchs. All the the Jews are but one of the twelve tribes. Their very name has become synonymous with Israel. The remaining lost tribes do not know their identity, though they carry the blood of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Prophecy foretells their future return to the family and the promised land of Israel. Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come in turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. Malachi chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. This text is sent as the spirit of Elijah. As part of that mission, its purpose is to turn the hearts of, the fa- of all the family of Israel not only to the covenants of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, but also to the Mashiach, or the Anointed One, who will come. Both supporters and detractors from the modern state of Israel recognize its founding and growth as a phenomenon without parallel in world history. The book you are now reading boldly predicts a future for Israel beyond what any without a spirit of prophecy could foretell. Those scattered remnants who yet carry the blood of Israel will resonate in a singular way with its message. Isaiah holds special significance in this text and is quoted extensively by the first prophet writer Nephi. This is due to Isaiah's singular position as a seer who saw and prophesied of our present day. You are encouraged to consider the Isaiah materials in light of the explanations given within this text. Other First Temple period prophets are also referenced or quoted by the writer of the stick writers of the stick of Yosef. Likewise, the Torah is quoted with comments and explanations by the ancient prophetic writers of this work. A note of warning about this book. The Stick of Yosef in the Hand of Ephraim is not just another book. Rather, it is all of the following unique and extraordinary things. Number one, the sounding of the shofar to the scattered tribes of the house of Israel as Jehovah's final attempt to gather his people. Number two, a dire warning to the United States of America and a cry of repentance to the modern state of Israel. Any nation that does not honor the Elohim of Israel will not survive. Number three, an independent witness to the prophets, Mashiach, 
and the covenants given by the Yehovah to Israel. Number four, a record of the means whereby all mankind can, as Moshe ascended to stand in the presence of Yehovah. And number six, an invitation to believe and receive the promises that Yehovah extended to those who will obey his people, or who will be his people. As is always the case with, Yeho- with Elohim's work, there will be opposition to this effort. Those who fight against it or say, this is just, or that is not, in an attempt to recast the text as something other than what it says it is, are dangerously ignorant, wicked, or both. They do not know or honor the God of Abraham, who vouches for these words. In fact, they fight against him. They are trifling with your soul, and if you pay heed to them, you will receive only disappointment. A Promise to the Reader The only way to know the truth of this record is to examine it for yourself. You are invited to study the contents of the stick of Joseph and to experiment upon Moroni's petition found in the final chapter. Quote, Behold, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom in Elohim that you should read them, that you would remember how merciful Jehovah hath been to the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you shall receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts. And when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask Elohim, the Eternal Father, in in the name of Mashiach, if these things are not true. And if you shall ask with a sincere heart and real intent, having faith in the Mashiach, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. And by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, you may know the truth of all things. Moroni chapter 10, verse 2. Elohim cannot lie, and he will keep his word.